0: Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to
1: Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy
0: Zachary. Well, today's fashion history mystery question comes to us from listener Narina Young. She wrote to us a while back and she asked, or she said, Hey, April and Cassidy, I have a question for fashion history mystery. I was thinking about immigration and fashion and how clothing can be a marker of difference for immigrants and was wondering if there's a particular item of clothing that was originally viewed as quote unquote foreign in the U.S., but then eventually became a part of mass culture. Thank you and love the podcast. Thank you for writing, Narina, and what a thought-provoking
1: question! Yes, especially because unless you are talking specifically about the clothing worn by Native Americans, indigenous to North America, all clothing in the United States is technically foreign, including what we're going to talk about today, which is flip flops.
0: <laughs> and I know what you may be thinking, dress listeners: flip flops are as American as baseball and apple pie. I am, of course, kidding, but they are quite quite the ubiquitous and off-lamented wardrobe staple here and have been for decades. People like my sister, I'm sorry, Haley, um, for calling you out here, but, you know, people like my sister are arguably addicted to this form of footwear and will own dozens of pairs of these inexpensive shoes within their lifetime. I have admittedly owned my fair share. Uh, I don't know about you, April, but especially in the 90s when they came as platforms, oh, and they came yeah. in every color under the sun. <laughs>
1: I, I might I might be guilty of still owning platform flip-flops.
0: <laughs> yeah, they can be pretty cool. So, Narina, I, I'm not sure that a history of the flip-flop is quite what you had in mind when sending us your query, but I promise you, its transnational
1: origin story will
0: not disappoint.
1: That's right, because to learn about the origins of the American flip-flop, we have to travel halfway around the world to Japan. So thonged sandals, as you already know, Cass, have actually been around for thousands of years, and they're found in many, many different cultures throughout the world, including ancient Egypt, Rome, Greece, Africa, the Middle East, China, India, Korea. But it's the Japanese versions of the flip-flop that are of particular interest to us today. And of course, in Japan, they're not called flip-flops. And we will learn about how that terminology came to be in a minute, but the type of thong sandals that we call flip flops are more or less a direct descendant of the Japanese zori and geita or gita. Zori are a flat
0: thonged sandal traditionally made from straw, leather, or wood. Gita are a thonged sandal traditionally made of wood and are raised off the ground by two pieces of wood known as teeth. They are essentially the sandal version of the elevated chopines we have previously discussed on the show. Uh, Those chopines were worn in Renaissance era Italy, and they actually serve the same purpose as Japanese Gita keep the wearer's feet and clothing away from the dirty city streets.
1: And apparently, the roots of Gita can be traced all the way back to the fifth century when they were invented by farmers who needed to elevate their feet above the water while they were planting rice in the fields. And by the 17th century, Society's elite had also adopted this innovative form of footwear into their wardrobes. And then by the 19th century, industrialization allowed for mass production of both Gita and Zori. And thus, they became adopted across Japanese society en masse.
0: But in Japanese culture, these type of thonged sandals also serve another practical purpose. They are easy to take on and off. So. In Japan, historically, and today, it is customary for men and women to take off their shoes when entering certain places, such as, you know, a a sacred temple, a restaurant, or, or a person's home. So these sorts of easy on and off shoes were a necessity. But just when did these shoes make their way to America, a place where these same social practices did not exist? And how were they transformed from these durable, practical straw and wooden versions, we've talked about April, you know, to this kind of flimsy plastic? flippity-floppity, you know, version we all know today.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely worth mentioning for our listeners that might not know that up until the 1850s, Japan had more or less been closed off from foreign trade for nearly 300 years. And that is until Commodore Matthew Perry, and also worth mentioning that that is not the Matthew Perry of Friends fame, clearly, <laughs> right? <laughs> He was a Commodore of the United States Navy, um, and he basically forced the opening of trade ports on the isolated island of Japan. And this really resulted in a flood of Japanese wares into America, which among many things included Japanese woodblock prints, which we all know and love, um, kimono, and gita. But really, at this time, gita were more of a novelty than um, than something that, People were wearing regularly. But in 1895, Harper's Bazaar dedicated an entire article to this fascinating form of Japanese footwear because at this time, this type of thong sandal was extremely foreign and unusual to Americans.
0: After the opening of Japan's border, Gita and Zori came to America on the feet of an increasing number of Japanese immigrants who started making their way to the country after years of isolation. So, for instance, in 1869, 22 samurai and one woman. <laughs> I love
1: that. I bet I know, she was very popular. It's very specific. <laughs> she had a lot of dates.
0: <laughs> right. They all immigrated to San Francisco and they created the short-lived Wakamatsu Tea and Silk Farm Colony. And I had never heard about this colony. This is so fascinating. So the settlers brought with them 6 million tea seeds, April, and 50,000 mulberry trees. What? That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, they were hoping to cultivate silkworms. So... Unfortunately, there was a number of circumstances that resulted in the demise of this colony. It was very short-lived. It only lasted from 1869 to 1871. But because it's considered to be the first permanent Japanese settlement in North America, the site is preserved today as part of the National Register of Historic Places.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. Maybe it was short-lived because they only had one lady with them. Just saying. (laughs) Girl power. Need more girl power. But uh, while Japanese were immigrating to the United States in the 19th century, they were also immigrating to Hawaii, which was not yet an official state at this time. In 1893, the United States supported a coup d'etat, which overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy, and then Hawaii was run by a provisional government until it became a territory of the U.S. in 1898. And a lot of these uh, Japanese immigrants were coming to Hawaii to work on the island's sugar plantations in the 19th century. And along with them, they brought their native dress and culture, and this included the Japanese zori and gita. And it did not take long for zori to become a staple of native Hawaiians' everyday wardrobe because they were really practical sandals in this hot climate. And in Hawaii, they came to be known as slippers or slaps.
0: And it is while serving in Hawaii and Japan during World War II that American soldiers picked up a liking for the Zori and the Gita and brought them back with them to the States. So these shoes were so popular that Women's Wear Daily was compelled to report on the development of the Japanese Gita industry for export. And they wrote on September 29th, 1945, Gita and in parentheses, wooden clogs will appear on the Japanese market in quantity. It will not be until about the end of the year that material for footwear will be available and production then should be about 300 to 900 pairs monthly.
1: Okay, so this is interesting. So basically they were creating Gita for export, right? Yes, uh,
0: the Japanese market had, you know, they'd recognized a market in Hawaii. And so they're beginning slowly but
1: surely to produce um, uh, Gita sandals for export. Fascinating. As is Elmer and Jean Scott, who were some of the first American shoemakers to capitalize on American soldiers' newfound interest in Japanese thong styles. And the Scots moved to Hawaii in 1932, where they originally started a business producing steel-toed work boots for sugar and pineapple plantation workers. But, Cass, as you know, with the outbreak of World War II, steel and many other um, important resources and materials became in short supply. So when that happened, the Scots turned their attention to producing zori locally in Hawaii.
0: Needless to say, the Scots found themselves catering to what turned out to be a huge market, especially after Hawaii was made a state in nineteen fifty nine and tourism to the islands skyrocketed. And more and more Americans returned home after vacation with their new thonged footwear. Elmer and Jean's son now runs the business, it's still around today, and he recently told the Hawaiian Times in an interview, quote, we were probably, if not the first, one of the first to actually make a flip-flop or thong or slipper in the U.S. because most people back in the 30s, well, they weren't really wearing anything between their toes. <laughs>
1: And I love this terminology that we've mentioned slipper because my boyfriend is Filipino and he calls his flip-flops slippers. And I didn't really understand uh, why that is, but now I do. So um, (laughs) the slippers were originally made of leather, but in the 1970s, the company started using rubber soles and nylon straps to service one particular market— which were surfers, which makes perfect sense being in Hawaii. And the contribution of surfers to the U.S. flip-flop phenomenon cannot be underestimated. And and these surfers really had hit Hawaii en masse in the 1960s. And upon returning home, they brought back, of course, their Hawaiian shirts, their board shorts, and also flip-flops. So, of course, with the success, it wasn't long before the company, Scott Hawaii, as it was known then, uh, met with some competition. They were soon joined by two other, quote-unquote, sandal companies that still exist today. The first is a Brazilian company, Javianas, which was created and patented in 1966. And they claim to being the first to manufacture flip-flops out of rubber. And cast I found this fascinating, the name Javianas actually comes from the Portuguese word for Hawaiians. And all of the flip-flops um, that Javianos produces actually come with a little pattern on the sole of the shoe that resembles the Japanese Zori. Right, and so you've mentioned now Javianas, we've talked about
0: Scott Hawaii, but there's also the really famous brand today known as Rainbow Sandals, founded by Jay Sparky Longley in 1974. So after repeatedly encountering discarded broken sandals while surfing, Longley says, "'I was determined to make a comfortable sandal that was durable enough to last and strong enough to hold together.'" But notice Jay used the term sandals. Got Hawaii similarly uses sandals in marketing their footwear, not flip-flops. So if flip-flop companies aren't even using the term flip-flop,
1: April, just where the heck did it come from? Well, we're going to get into that. So flip-flop as a term not applied to footwear is actually thought to have originated sometime in the 17th century. And it was used to apply to just about anything that either, quote-unquote, flaps or flops. But when we see it first applied to footwear, well, of course, for our answers, we turn to our tried and true resource, which is, of course, online digitized newspapers and magazine archives, where we found in a Women's Wear Daily article from July 10, 1936, um, an article that was talking about a new type of toeless evening sandals that at this time the term peep toe was first coined.
0: Yep, and now we get to really geek out and get into the archives. So this article says, (laughs) the new evening sandals, however, introduce many cuts which distinguish them from those of last year. Toeless effects are prevalent, usually small openings, and one designer recommends... As of chief style importance, sandals, which introduce an extended sole for protection and interesting cuts of the upper at this point. Triangles, squares, ovals, novelty effects, suggesting scalloped outlines. Quote-unquote peep toes is the way another designer characterizes them to give the impression of smallness at the opening of the toes.
1: And apparently these shoes, which were open in the back because um, the article continues... All resistance to the open back seems to have died down as the designers see it. However, it is remarked that the question of fit here is a very important one, with additional comment that most manufacturers are doing a very good job in getting this portion of the open chute to fit snugly to the foot without the flip-flop, which was originally associated with such constructions. So... There you had it, Cass. This is where we first kind of begin to see this term flip-flop being used in relationship to a shoe. But it's still not exactly the flip-flopped, the thonged version that we're really talking about today. Right,
0: but in the 1930s we of course are still pretty far from the plastic mass-produced flip-flop that we all know, but we at least know that the term flip-flop was part of the fashion vernacular. But honestly, I was very hard-pressed to find many other mentions of flip-flops in the Women's Wear Daily archive, although there are quite a few flip-flop hats which I found amusing. <laughs> <laughs> and the first ad that I found that even mentioned flip-flops, um, you know, as in relation to what we know as flip-flops was in Seventeen magazine of all places. It was in August 1980 and it advertise this product called Slap Socks. Before you put those thongs or flip-flops or go-aheads or whatever it is you call your sandals into hibernation, check out Slap Socks, the perfect way to winterize your casual footwear. So there you have it. By the 1980s, flip-flop is a term being used for, well, flip-flops.
1: Yeah, and this is interesting, these slap socks. I mean, that's not a new idea, right? I mean, that's essentially the exact same type of split-toed socks that Japanese people were wearing with their gaita and their zori, right? Or Gita. Right, exactly. So needless to say, the flip-flop is alive and well in the United States today, even if the wearing of socks with them probably not so common. (laughs) But where Scott Hawaii manufactures 300,000 pair of their sandals a year, rainbow sandals produces upwards of two million. And we're talking about an industry that is reportedly worth $20 billion. And I hate to say it, Cass, but a lot of those flip-flops, once they're broken or just worn out, they end up in landfills.
0: They certainly do. And April, it is in this way that traditional Japanese footwear became the bastardized American flip-flop, the plastic, flimsy, disposable, cheap, ubiquitous footwear we all know today. I am kidding, partly, of course. There are the inexpensive disposable flip-flops we all have owned and broken and replaced, but companies like Rainbow Sandals are producing flip-flops to last. And they even have a Renew Reuse Recycle program to help give your broken sandals new life. Scott Hawaii's sandals also have a lifetime guarantee. Or why not dress listeners out for the Japanese original? You can buy Japanese Zori and Gita from companies such as Nippon & Co. online.
1: Or why not cast by some really beautiful flip-flop art? Yes, you heard <laughs> me correctly, flip-flop art. Um, because Ocean Soul Africa, and when I say soul, it's S-O-L-E, it's a not-for-profit run by Aaron Smith that works with Kenyan artisans to give discarded flip-flops a second life as incredibly beautiful, vibrantly colored animal sculpture art and in a recent interview with jacksonville.com Aaron talked about the environmental repercussions of the flip-flop industry which intentionally produces flip-flops to break. so it's kind of like this you know planned obsolescence situation. So that being said, these inexpensive shoes oftentimes are the only shoes that a lot of people in the world can afford. so solutions to this flip-flop waste problem isn't exactly an easy answer which is what makes
0: Ocean Soul Africa such a beautiful business model, literally. The website reads, Our process is manual, not machine. Each piece is made with care and love. The story of each product begins as a flip-flop on someone's feet. Then it's thrown out and ends up in the ocean. We collect it, clean it, compress it, and then carve it into beautiful art to be revived again with love. Through the process, oceans are cleaned, jobs are provided, masterpieces are made,
1: and in the end, you get something truly special and unique. And get this. Last year, the company recycled... Half of a million pairs of flip flops. And wow. I know it's spectacular. <laughs> um, even the leftover rubber is shredded and then made into mattresses for refugees. So, this is such an incredible business model um, and they produce really lovely art. If you're interested in learning more about what they do or buying a piece, you can head over to OceansoulAfrica.com. That's Ocean S O L E Africa.com and check it out.
0: Well, Narina, I hope that answers your question. And actually, if you want more of these types of stories, there's a book called Ethnic Dress in the U.S., a cultural encyclopedia. And I contributed two articles on the so-called harem pant and the turban. But the book's really fascinating um, and has so many other reads on so many different types of clothing. So check it out. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of the Japanese Zori and Gita in your
1: flip-flops next time you get dressed. We still have three spots left for our June 2020 Dressed Fashion History Tour of Paris. So if you would like to come join us in the City of Lights, you can head over to likemindstravel.com for more information. Also, if you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes. We love hearing from you all. So if you would like to write to us with your own fashion history mystery question, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Be sure to also follow along on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is also our Twitter handle. And you can also follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore.
0: Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pregram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Thank you too to our dressed listeners. We love you and couldn't do it without you. We will catch you next week.